here in the scriptures. So this is God's word from Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, And Jesus came to them and, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then we see in Revelation 7, uh, the mission accomplished. Uh, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just got a glimpse of, of where you're taking us, uh, that we will be gathered around the throne uh, celebrating your grace. And so this morning, I, I pray that you would give us a taste of what we were created for, uh, to worship you, to worship the Lamb, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And you would teach us that even as we receive your grace, you send us out uh, with, the, with the help of your presence to obey and to, to speak your good news. And so I, pr I pray your spirit would be here to teach us, uh, to give me words to speak clearly, and that your gospel would be proclaimed and we would believe. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So John Piper begins his book on missions, that missions, right, taking, telling people about who Jesus is across the ends of the world, that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, that worship is, and that missions exist because worship does not. And worship is supposed to be the fuel for missions because you can't commend, you can't tell other people what you don't first already cherish. If you haven't read it, it's Let the Nations Be Glad. I mean, this is my shameless plug for it. Um, if it's not in the library, we should get it. But he's just saying that the whole point of... We come to church and we think that the, the goal is to get the gospel out, but the goal really is that everybody would acknowledge that there is a God, that he made them, that they've rebelled, and that there is a Savior, and that the goal is to worship and make much of him. And that's the fuel for our, our obedience, our love for Jesus. 
Right? And that's what we read in Matthew 28, that Jesus ends his ministry by telling the church that you have a job to do. You're going to go out and make disciples of all nations. It's not just for your, your particular group. And as you go, make disciples. And then the vision we just read is the, is the job finished. I mean, that's really what it is. It's just a snapshot of, of everybody that Jesus has saved gathered around him, rejoicing in awe that they're there that God had included them. And there's so many of them, it's an uncountable multitude. It's like trying to count the stars. You know, the, the, the number of people throughout all of history, throughout all of time that, that God has redeemed, you're not even going to be able to count them. It's like the numbers of the grains of sand. And so that's, that's why we did our service the way we did. I, we're, we're privileged to have folks from other nations here worshiping among us. I wanted to give them a chance to to give us a preview of what heaven's going to be like. People in other languages celebrating Jesus. If you look at the world, right now there are about 7.3 billion people, and the estimates say there are at least 6,900 languages. And out of the 195 or 196 countries in the world, there are 16,000 people groups. I mean, you're starting to see how this breaks up. And right now, currently in the world, 40% of all those people groups, they don't have an established church. And so just getting this idea that the, the church, that the church that Jesus loves, his bride, the people he died for, um, they're not only American. Right? The, the, one of the things I remember was taking some kids to, to Mexico and I, I think I've said this before, that one of the guys thanked me because he knew that Jesus wasn't white, but he really knew it after he got to leave the country. See, because heaven's going to be a place where we don't all speak English. There's going to be former Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, uh, people who worship their ancestors, people who had no idea God even existed. They didn't care, and all of a sudden they profess faith. It's going to be all these people with these wonderful stories of how God came and invaded their lives and turned them around because Jesus showed up. And worship is equipping us to try and be a part of their story to bring them in. And that God has called us in to receive his grace, to send us out as his witnesses. And that, that's the whole direction of this church, of every Sunday service. We tell the story of who, who we are, of who God is, and he says, now that you know you are forgiven, now you know that I am with you, now that you have had your heart refreshed, restored, and renewed, go, get out, <laughs> follow me. And so that, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, right? that, that Jesus is calling us to take his grace and to live lives of, by faith in him out into the community. And that, that the ordinary way that God raises up servants, that he raises up missionaries, that he takes his word into the world is through what we do on a Sunday morning. All right. And before we look at this passage, I do need to, just to guide virtue of the fact that we're here in, in the West, um, just remind ourselves that what Jesus is saying and what the scriptures say, that I am the, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father, that no one knows God except me. We talked about it some last week. We live in a culture that doesn't like that. Because religion is a private thing. 
And maybe you've heard this story if you've tried to, to share the gospel. You've heard the story of the blind men and three blind men and the elephant, of where it's an old, it's an old story. It's where three blind men come across, find themselves coming across an elephant and they start arguing about what it actually is. One of them is holding onto the trunk of the elephant and says, no, this, whatever this is, it must be like a snake because it's round. And, and the other blind man who's come across the elephant, he's just touching the side. He says, it's not like a snake. You don't know what you're talking about. It's just like a wall. And then the third blind man who's, who's grabbing hold of the, the leg of the elephant says, no, you, you're both wrong. Right? It's, it's the trunk of a tree. That's what we're touching. And the story is told to say that this is what religion is like. Right? That, that everybody's right, but not everybody, and everybody's wrong. They don't have a complete picture of the truth, and so we might as well just leave them alone to hold on to the truth that they have. And that convincing them to believe your way is, is just arrogant. Right? I mean, that's, the gist is that only those who humbly admit that they have part of the truth and it's telling us to leave, leave one another alone. And I just want to tell you, I mean, I've heard this in conversations. Um, just, just listen to the story again. Look at the elephant. How can you, how can our friends say, you Christians claim to be so narrow that you're the only ones who see, but the only ones who would know what the, the blind men are actually touching is somebody who knows that they see. Do you see that? A little philosophical twist there. <laughs> that the only way you can actually say you religious people only have part of the truth is to actually say, no, I have the whole truth myself. I know how the world is. Right? And so what we're doing is we come here and say God sends us out to say Jesus is the very center of the universe, that everybody must submit to him, that every tongue, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. But Jesus is saying, I'm it. And everybody's trying to argue that, that their way of truth is right. And let's at least be honest. <laughs> right? If this is about your understanding of truth, let's at least say you're arguing for a particular way of seeing. Right? Because the church, we're called to go out and have these conversations. And I'm trying to equip you to be able to respond. To say that Jesus really is worthy of all your time, all your your emotional energy, your, to go out and take the risk of being rejected, to bring people into the worship of the living God. Because people will hear what we're talking about today, and they'll go to places like uh, Yemen or Syria or Somalia and put, take their very lives at risk for these things. Right. And so let's, let's look at Revelation 7. What is so special about the Lamb that people would take that kind of risk to go across the globe, uh, to, or even just among your friends, to take the risk of say, why don't you come to church? Um, why don't you believe Jesus is Lord? Have you actually thought about these things? All right, so I got three points this morning. You can see them in your, your outline in the bulletin. We're going to look at first, what in the world's happening here? What's happening around the Lamb in Revelation 7? And we're going to talk about what's happening in the future and what that means for us in the present. All right, so what's happening around the Lamb? And the Lamb is, is Jesus. And you've got to know that Revelation is a book. It's, it's, in some ways, it's really simple. In other ways, it's, it's really complicated. It's simple in the fact that it starts out by saying, I'm going to show you Jesus. 
Jesus showed up to his friend John after he rose from the dead. John was in church Sunday like we are. He was worshiping and he had these visions. And Jesus said, write it down and tell the church. And It's a revealing of Jesus. That's Revelation 1.1. That's what the whole thing's about. And then you get all these big weird pictures. It's a picture book. But the whole point is to see that Jesus is um, the same Jesus who lived on earth and was crucified on the cross. Is the same Jesus who's sitting on the throne and controlling everything. And you just get assaulted with pictures to, to show you that it's true. And so here in Revelation 7, you say, what does Jesus want us to see? Well, he wants us to see that this is where all of creation is heading. To get a glimpse of heaven, just a small glimpse. This is not what we're going to do for eternity. This is just one particular snapshot to help us persevere. Right? And so in, in chapter 6, you read about the seals, these weird things that a seal's open and horses show up and all these terrible things happened. But the big idea is it's trying to get you to see that Jesus is in control of peace, of war, injustice, famine, sickness, sorrow. Even the martyrs, they're in Jesus' hands. Uh, even who, are, who the leaders of the kings of the earth are. Right? Jesus gives them permission. And so by the time you get to this picture here in Revelation 7, Jesus is showing us that the mission he has called the church to do, which is take his gospel to the ends of the earth, will actually be accomplished. Which gives immense confidence that when you speak in a place where people do not know Jesus, somebody's coming out. Right, so what we have here is this picture of an international multitude of people gathered around Jesus at the center, giving him glory, praise, and honor. And it says, who are these people? You can look at this in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And it's not enough time. We don't have enough time to, art, to go into the details and the different ways people see this. But it's just this big idea this, to describe life as tribulation. That Christians throughout history have had troubles and trials. Not just persecution, just suffering in general, but by virtue of being human, living in this world. Uh, they died young. They lost children. They were persecuted. They were martyred. They, they had sickness. They had abuse, oppression. All these people who have suffered have come now into God's presence. They persevered. They finally made it. That's who these people are. And then the second half of this passage in verses 15 to 17 it's just a song that you will sing one day. Right? That the suffering will be no more. That hunger and thirst will be no more. Uh, that, that the sun will not destroy people and, and burn things up. Right? That you'll find rest. You'll find shade. And you put all this together. What we're looking at is God's church. The church triumphant gathered together. Um, to celebrate what God has done, that they've actually made it. And all they can do is look at the Lamb. Jesus has consumed all their attention. All right? and I just want to remind you, this is not what heaven, this is heaven, everybody in God's presence, but it's just part of the journey along the way before the new heavens and new earth come down. I mean, this is the things we're going to do for eternity. 
of we're going to live in a new world, a new, a new creation, an earthly existence. You're going to have a new body worshiping Jesus the Lamb. Um, and this is just a picture of what it's like along the way. So, what are we supposed to get out of this? All right, if, if the church is gathered together, worshiping Jesus the Lamb, and one of the things you see, this is my second point, that, that our future in heaven is going to be consumed with love and awe and praise and wonder for Jesus the Lamb. Even in heaven. I mean, I'll say it this way, we're going to be obsessed with Jesus in the future in heaven. That the gospel will never get old. In fact, we'll actually be consumed with it the way we ought to be now. That one day it will come when you land and see Jesus face to face and you know that he's the one who crucified, was crucified for you and died for your sins. And you're actually going to believe it. <laughs> That's what they're talking about in, in all the different languages, in Kiswahili, uh, in in Tagalog, as, as, as Roderick read, and Malagasy, in Spanish, in English. I mean, time to, we don't have time to go through all the languages, mostly because I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> right? But everybody is saying, salvation belongs to my Lord and my God, and he gets all the honor for bringing me here. And Jesus, he's the one who's wiping away my tears. Um, He's going to allow me to finally rest in this world as I meant, was meant to rest, without sickness, without selfishness, um, the world as it should be. And it will be permanent. You're going to get to that moment where God will be enough. Right? I mean, what, what John's trying to show us, what Jesus wants you to see, is that heaven's going to be heaven because of the presence of the Lamb of God. And it'll be heaven because you'll finally appreciate and understand and experience the power of the gospel that when you see him, you'll finally be what he's called you, children of God. And you'll be transformed in an instant. You'll be perfect. All right. Which is fascinating because... You think about, we've been talking about through this whole series that we need to come to church regularly. I need to come to church regularly because I need to hear the gospel over and over again. Because we forget who we are. We forget what God is like. Um, we take God for granted. We're, we're very quick to uh, think we're better than we are. And Jesus is showing us that the gospel's never going to get old. That one day in the future... We're just never going to get over the fact that he was willing to bleed on our behalf. That what we do right here, right now, is supposed to be a preview of heaven. Or the, the deep within that simple story that Jesus loves you, he gave his life for you, is the seed of an eternal joy. A story that will never end, a story that never gets old. That in the future you're going to be obsessed. You won't be able to look away. Because you read the book of Revelation over and over and over again, you're going to hear that Jesus is the Lamb. When you get to the end in Revelation 21 and 22, it's talking about the Lamb, the presence of the Lamb. This is the city of the Lamb. The Lamb is its light, Jesus. He's the one you're going to be able to see by. The Lamb is the one seated on the, seating, uh, seated on the throne. <laughs> All right. 
So what, what's the big deal? Why should we be so excited about the Lamb? All right, well, in Revelation, it's telling us all right, two things. In Revelation 5, it paints this picture that Jesus is the promised king of old, a lion. He's the, he's the fearsome one. And then it takes the, the opposite picture and say, no, he's also the lamb. All right, and, and what it's trying to get us to remember is what happened in the Old Testament. Right, this is who Jesus is, what he did on earth, and what, what God had done throughout history. Right, that, I'll put it this way, that there's nothing in Revelation you will not find anywhere else in the Bible. It's not new, it's just put differently and creatively to try and get you excited, to wake you up, to stir your creative juices. Right, and so the lamb in the Old Testament was from the story of the Passover. Right, you remember the, the back in Exodus, Israel found themselves in slavery, and you have the story of the ten plagues, and the, the, the plagues culminated... Right, with the last one, the, the worst one. And there was this long battle between Moses and Pharaoh as God was trying to free his people from Egypt, and you know, Pharaoh just didn't want to let him go. And so God says, fine, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to take the firstborn of everyone who is not covered by the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to kill the firstborn. And I know how that sounds. That why would God pro- threaten to kill children? Or even more, why would God play favorites? It seems to go against the opposite of the invite we've just been talking about. Why would he attack Egypt and not Israel? Because you, you read the Old Testament, Israel is not any better than Egypt. They get into the desert, they've seen God work, and they start complaining. They, put God, they bring God up on legal charges. They want to kill him for not being good, good enough for them. Right, no, here's what the firstborn is about. Because in the ancient world, the way your life was wrapped up in your firstborn son. He get, the firstborn son got twice the inheritance, all the hopes of the family continuing keeping the land. Everything was wrapped up in the firstborn child. Right, we think, I have a life if I'm doing well. We're individualistic. But in a family culture, they said, my life is great when my firstborn child is successful. I know I have a life based on how well he's doing. And so what God was communicating in that particular context is that everybody is a sinner. He says, I'm going to come down and judgment's going to happen. And God being a God of holiness and justice who does not let anything or anyone off the hook. God's saying, I'm going to take the firstborn so that you understand that, that you are a sinner. All right, so when God says, no one is righteous, that no one deserves God's help, no one is okay, in that context, he's saying, I'm going to take your firstborn so that you see that you, you deserve judgment. That I'm calling in your debt. You have not been faithful. Um, it's on you. Right. And so, as we're talking about this, this is what the story of the Passover is about. It's not about those terrible Egyptians finally getting what, com- what comes to them because the good Israelites were saved. No, it's God's coming, and there are those who need just 
justice is coming, and, and the only way out is if God would be merciful. Because God didn't just tell the Egyptians that the firstborn was going to be taken. He told the Israelites as well. You remember? It says, when my spirit comes, if you want to survive, you better take this cute, fluffy little lamb, slit its throat, collect the blood, paint the post with the blood, and hide inside. Do not come out. I mean, eat. Eat everything. It's a picture of, of eating with me. But I want you to know that you too deserve this judgment. And that night had to be haunting. I mean, I just can't imagine what that would be like to be hiding under the blood of the Lamb, to know that you deserve what's happening, and to hear the screams of your neighbors, the wailing. And what happens is, I mean, it's this picture that the blood will take away sin, it's all pointing forward. And what happened was the Egyptians got the message. They let God's people go, and it says a mixed multitude. It wasn't just one nationality that left Egypt. It was a small portrait of what we just read in Revelation 7. Now, you go years later. You got this picture. How can a blood of a lamb actually forgive sin? How can a blood of a lamb protect me? It's just the blood of an animal. Jesus shows up in John chapter 1, and one of the things that's shouted about him by John the Baptist in John one twenty nine: Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. I am mercy in the presence of justice. And everybody listening to John would know some of the Old Testament scriptures. Like Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter, this Messiah was going to keep his mouth shut. And by his work, many people will be accepted and made righteous by God. And see, that's who Jesus is. This is what the future is going to call us to remember that That Jesus, the Lamb of God, when God came down from heaven to earth, he didn't come to judge the the world, he came to save the world. And that Jesus, like a lamb, was slaughtered. His blood was spilled so that we might be forgiven, that we might be, be cleansed, that we might be accepted, so that we might know just how much God loves us. Because who did God send? It was his firstborn, his life, his best, so that you may know that God loves you that much. And so we can turn around and look at the cross as Jesus was crucified, bearing the wrath we deserve for our grumbling and complaining and just not liking God, not wanting him in our lives, breaking his law. We can turn and look at that and say, thank God I escaped your justice solely by your mercy. And in the future, you're going to be so blown away by that. That's how you're going to picture Jesus as a lamb. It's going to be burned into your, your eyes, so to speak. And it's, it's even more than that, right? that he's the one who took your place. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who was the, the greater sacrifice 
But it says here in Revelation 7 that all these people gathered around the throne, they're clothed in white robes. And it's a weird way of talking, of saying, but it's, it's not that they picked up clothes and they like them because they're white. It's a passive verb. They have physically been given clothes worthy of, of the presence of God. God wrapped them up and gave them the clothes. And what it's a picture of, well, I'll use Jesus' story because this is how Jesus pictured it. This is from Matthew 22. He's, he says, this is how you can picture heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. And so again, he sent other servants and said, tell those who are invited. See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast, but no one paid attention. And everyone went off, each to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And so the king was angry. And so he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast anyone you can find, as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered everyone they could find, both bad and good, and so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And so then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That's a brutal story from Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But you hear what he said? Heaven's like a feast, and you needed to have the right clothes to get in. And there was a guy there who tried to get in by his own merits, by thinking he could wear whatever he wanted. And the king turned to him and said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Not because you're bad, not because you're good, just because you don't have the right clothes. Right. And so what John is telling us here in Revelation is you're going to have the right clothes. That's how it worked in the ancient world. You gave the clothes to the wedding guests so that they could have entrance. It was like an old ancient guest list. And the clothes you get are white. Pure, spotless, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. It's a picture that when you come to faith in Christ, you've been made righteous. And for the first time, this will be true forever. You'll be perfect. God already accepts you and treats you as perfect because of the Lamb. But one day it'll be true permanently and forever. And so think about a wedding. And I've been in a wedding. <laughs> I've offici only officiated one. But it's funny to watch the groom. I'm speaking from experience, right? The groom has a, a, a deer in the headlights look. He hasn't really paid attention to any of the planning. He's just showed up. <laughs> but when the bride comes down the aisle, that's when his eyes pop out. Right? Enjoy you know, looking at the beauty and the wonder and the radiance of, of, of this woman that he has promised to commit himself to. To say, there she is, she's mine. That's the, cl 
the clothes we're clothed in. Wedding garments. That's how Jesus sees you. And one day, that, that, uh, that soft-eyed look of, of longing and anticipation that the groom has for a bride is the way Jesus is going to look at you and me. Say, thank God this moment is here. We're going to spend eternity forever in a world as it should be, where you're going to want me as I have chased you. I'm telling you the same thing over and over again in different ways because that's all Revelation is doing. It's saying one day the, the time will come where the gospel will not be boring. You'll be obsessed with the Lamb. And so what does that mean for us today? <laughs> see, we see the power of the gospel for us right now. I mean, if... If the future of heaven is everybody in awe of this Jesus from every tribe, every tongue, every nature, every nation, we get two implications. One, you're, you're called to ask, what do you love right now? Do you, do, you, do you find the Lamb exciting right now? Do you find His grace worthy of your worship? I mean, in the future, if you're going to be longing for and obsessing over the Lamb, and Sunday worship is designed to get your attention focused on the Lamb, you're called to ask, what do I love? What have I, been, what have I been pouring all my attention, all my focus on this past week that hasn't been Christ? Right? Because that's what we do. As human beings, we were made to praise things, to praise what we love most. This is, <laughs> this is how we work. Right? The Super Bowl is coming next week. We praise what we love most. You're going to see all. Thousands, millions of people gathered around this one football game praising the wonders of their favorite team. And I, mean, I remember hearing this in Cortland because uh, back before Rex Ryan had a job, <laughs> he, was, he brought the Jets to Cortland for a training camp. And so we went, just because it was like a mile down the road from our house, to go watch the game, to watch the scrimmage at the end, just to be able to see the players. And because you know, it was cool, it was right down the road. And I vividly remember one guy, a Jets fan, saying this as we were sitting there waiting for the game to happen. He was saying, I live and die for this stuff, man. Which is depressing because it's the Jets. Right? At, least, at least aim for the Patriots or something. <laughs> but what's he doing? He's praising what he loves, what he finds worthy of his worship, worthy of his time, worthy of his money, worthy of his energy, this is what we're called to do, to look at the Lamb and say, He is worthy. Worthy of my affection, worthy of my time, worthy of my money, worthy of my words, to go out and say, This Jesus is what the world was made for. Right. And as, as you see who the Lamb is, as you grow in your love for the Lamb, as we gather together and worship, it's going to be the fuel for missions. Because as your heart bursts into all that God would love somebody like you and like me, you'll be a witness. I mean, as you see the picture of where God's going, he says, this is happening with or without you. <laughs> he says, why don't you follow me and, and, and work with what I'm doing in the world because you find me and my kingdom worthy. And so we ask the question, how can I be used to bring more people under the refuge of the blood of the Lamb? It's Jesus' command of the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you. I, I will be with you in this. 
even to the end of the age. And if you learn to love what the Lamb loves, the nations, people outside these walls, God God through His Spirit is going to work on us. We'll become witnesses. And so how does it work? I mean, one, this is a hard place. New York is not a place known for revival anymore. <laughs> right? If in the South, they view, they view the North. I heard this this past week, right? That the, the, New York is the place where churches go to die. <laughs> but that's not true if you read Revelation. That as you preach the gospel, if you tell people about Jesus, you can be confident that somebody's coming out. You can go into the hard places because that's where Jesus does his work. Because we were a hard place. <laughs> right? and Bethany and I were going to go to Uganda. That was our goal, to go up to the north, to Oringa, to an unreached people group. Um, Muslim. We wouldn't be welcome. Um, I had no idea what we were signing up for. It didn't work out that way. It's fine. But how do you go into those places like Somalia, like... Like Syria, there are Christians in Syria who say, we are not going to leave. We want to stay here, even though it's dangerous. It's because they have this vision of the Lamb. That as they speak, somebody will come out. Jesus will redeem them through their words. You see, this is the pattern of the gospel. God calls us in. He forgives us. He cleans us up. Sends us out with the blessing of his presence and says, go. It's the pattern all the way through the scriptures. I've saved you from Egypt. Now you're going to be my kingdom of priests priests to the nations. Praise my name among the nations. Um, Isaiah, he sees the glory of God. He receives grace. Behold, your sin is atoned for. Now who will go and preach to people who will hate you and will not listen and will not change? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Abraham, I am with you. Now get out of here. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. Just leave. Right, so we end. So I want to end the, the sermon here. You see the, the, the story of the gospel is always to call us in, build us up. See, God really is with you regardless of what you've done this past week because of grace. If you would believe and trust him, now be, be his witnesses. Get out. Right? We, we get welcomed in and then we get to kick out the door because he's with us. And so that's why we end our service, and you can look at the bulletin, with a benediction and a charge. Because you're being sent out with a good word from God to go and live in light of the grace you've received out of love for the Lamb. All right? And that's the quote in your, your bulletin. It's the final aspect of gospel-oriented worship, Brian Chapel says. The benediction is not merely just an end of the service, a closing but it's integral to the sending, which is appropriate for a forgiven, instructed, and blessed people. So when you hear the benediction, you know what we're called to expect? Is, yeah, God loves me and I don't deserve it. It's good news. It's a good word from our God. That's what benediction means. But it's saying that God loves you in Christ. He's with you by his spirit. And now he's going to give you the words and the power and the ability to to. to to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, even here in Boston Spa. Which means, you know the ordinary way God raises up missionaries. 
I mean, I know we tend to think of we need big conferences, and, and they're important, they're helpful. But really, it happens in church. Right? In Acts 13, the church is just praying and fasting and gathering together, and the Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas to go to the nations. They're here because they get a glimpse of what the Lamb has done and what he's doing in the world, and they want to go. Maybe some of you will be sent by us. That would be a f- phenomenal thing. Maybe that's what God's doing. But regardless, when we gather week in and week out to hear the good news that God has summoned us, that he's seeking our hearts as sinners, calling us to confession, calling us to respond by faith, showing us what he's like in Jesus, speaking to us a good word, the gospel, the good news, that we are forgiven and righteous. And then he says, go, I will be with you. And and so I pray that, that, that that would shape our expectations. Because um, it's easy to go through the motions. And maybe even now, as you see the Lamb seated on the throne, as you've heard different languages praising his name, maybe he's calling you. And it's what we said last night. John Piper says there's three different types of people according to the scriptures those who go, those who send those who go, and those who are disobedient. <laughs> May God, by his grace, make us the first two. Let's pray. Father, we just got a a big overview of what you've done in the world, and I pray that we would be in awe, even now, of the Lamb's love for us, that you would give your firstborn, the one whom you love, for people like us. And so now as we go, I pray your Spirit would come and fill us with the very fullness of God to give us everything we need for faith and godliness, and that you would make us a people not afraid to tell others about how great your Son is the truth of who he is. For one day, all, every knee, every tongue and tribe will bow at his name, and we pray that it would be done through faith, uh, not because they're, they're surprised now at the end when it's too late. And so, Lord, give us the confidence of your presence so that we might speak boldly on your behalf, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.